It's good to be with you guys tonight. I'm uh, glad to be joining you this Sunday evening. I heard there's another event going on, but I'm sure this is way better than that. So I'm glad to be joining you here. I think a lot of the college students, they probably went to that one instead, but uh, it's still good to be with you. Tonight we're going to be uh, looking at Romans chapter 5, so you can open up in your pew Bibles uh, in front of you, Romans chapter 5. And before uh, we read that passage, I just want to note something about the structure of the passage so we get kind of an understanding of what Paul's trying to do here uh, before we go ahead and read it. It can be kind of understood simply, the pattern that he's laying out, and it's just this, is that Paul is beginning by talking about our present blessings that we enjoy in the Christian life. And then he's moving to the past basis of our assurance of enjoying those blessings. And then, what we're not actually going to talk about tonight, but he ends this small passage by moving forward to what the believers will enjoy in the future. And so he's starting with the present, moving to the past, and then looking ahead to the future. And we're going to understand this passage in a similar way this evening. And so, with that kind of framework in mind, I'm going to go ahead and read this passage. And if you want to read along with me, I will be looking specifically at verses 1 through 8, although I think your bulletins say 1 through 11. And so, uh, we can begin reading in uh, chapter 5, uh, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God shows his love for us in that, while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Please pray with me. Father, your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing bone and marrow. God, we pray that your word would cut us to the core tonight. God, exposed us the places where we don't understand the gospel, places where we don't believe the gospel, areas of our life where we don't want to apply the gospel. Help us understand what the gospel is and what the gospel does. What's true about the gospel and what the gospel will call us to do. God, help us understand this passage clearly. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, I'm sure many of you uh, and me included, have known people who've dealt with cancer. Maybe you're dealing with cancer currently, and you kind of know that the cancer journey is one of um, one meeting after another after another trying to find who can help me, who can help me with the issue that I'm dealing with. When someone gets diagnosed with cancer, they don't go to their family practice and think, this guy's got all the answers. I don't need to talk to anybody else. Is they know he does his job really well, but that's just the beginning. They've got to go from one specialist to another specialist to another. They can't just spend more time with their family practitioner. They need to move beyond their family practitioner to the experts, to the specialists. 
Well, in a recent book, a guy by the name of Matthew Lapine, he's a theologian and pastor, he's talking about this idea of Christian growth and Christian counseling, and he traces a similar trajectory for the Christian life. And what he says is this, and he uses a little bit different language than I'm going to use tonight, but he basically says that a lot of times Christians believe the problems they're facing in their life are too great for what he calls the theological story. Maybe we could say the gospel story. The problems, the trials, the trauma they faced, the gospel or the theological story, it just doesn't seem to have answers for them. And so they move beyond that to what he labels the secular story. And so it's not that these people are no longer Christians. It's that they kind of grew disillusioned. They got a lot of pat answers about how the gospel changed their life, but all they really ever heard about was someday, in eternity, after I die. And what this guy, Matthew Pine, is trying to say is actually the Bible itself has the resources to help us deal with our greatest problems even now. But I think he's getting at a really important point. A lot of us think the gospel is good news to save me from hell and to get me into heaven. Those are great things, and we think that's pretty much enough, right? Jesus saved me from my sin. Isn't that enough? And then we actually go get informed about how to live our life from a million other places. Maybe it's social media. Maybe it's Instagram. Maybe it's CNN. Maybe it's Fox News. And those are the places that actually teach you how to live your life. Those are the places that inform you about reality, what's true, how, what to do tomorrow. You get informed about your relationships from secular psychology. You get informed about how to run your business from secular business books. And we fail to realize that the gospel has the resources to deal with our problems. Well, in light of that, what Paul's going to uh, kind of point us on to see today is that the gospel is full of present benefits and blessings and riches for those who are in Christ. And so when the trials of life, when the difficulties of life come, we don't need to look past the gospel. We need to look deeper into the gospel. A way to think about this would be is that your family practitioner in life might not be enough, but Jesus is the Mayo Clinic. He's got all the answers that we need. He's got all the resources. There's no specialist that he doesn't know. Does it make sense? He's got all the answers that we need for all of life's problems, and they're found in the gospel. That's what Paul wants us to see tonight. But there might be a question like, how do we get this from the book of Romans? It's a pretty common book. I like to say that I took the low-hanging fruit in preaching tonight. Someone asked me if I was going to preach through Exodus. I said, no, no, no. We're going to go straight to the, the Romans, you know, to find the gospel really simply for someone like myself. Um, but we've all read Romans, and we all have presuppositions about what Romans is about. But what I want to argue, maybe, is that Romans is a little bit different than maybe what we've been taught. Often, people think about the book of Romans like it's a theological textbook. I don't have any problem with theological textbooks. We've got a lot of them in the office downstairs. But Romans isn't quite like that, I don't think. Romans is a lot like the rest of Paul's letters. He's dealing with real people in a particular place, at a particular time, dealing with particular issues. It's not just Paul's compendium of the great truths of the Christian life. It's Paul applying the great truths of the Christian life to a specific situation in Rome. What is that situation? I think we could argue historically that the issue in Romans, this is going to be pretty interesting, I think, is that there's disunity in the church. And Paul is helping us see that the gospel is the key to solving the problem of disunity and all the other problems in the Christian life. 
How would we know that? Well, bear with me here. This is going to be a little bit like high school history class. But when the church in Rome was founded, it was probably started by Jewish Christians who had come to faith and the, when Peter preached the sermon in Acts 2. They go back to Rome. They lead Gentiles, or God-fears, to Christ. And so the church initially in Rome is a mixed body. There's Jews and there's Gentiles worshiping together. But maybe five, six, seven years before this letter was written, the emperor, a guy by the name of Claudius, issues an edict or a decree. And he has an issue with the Jews, so he expels all the Jews out of Rome. Okay, so who's left? The Gentiles. And so the church, in these five to seven years, starts to get Gentile leadership. The music starts to sound a little more Gentile. The preaching, it's more Gentile. And so seven years later, Claudius dies. The decree is removed. And the Jews come back and they find a church that just doesn't feel like it used to. We don't really like the preaching. It's not the way it used to be. And the music, it's just, I don't know, I just don't like it as much. And so they're beginning to have these issues of disunity in the church. And so when Paul, and, and this is something historically people have understood, Augustine would have thought about Romans in almost the same way, but Paul is taking the gospel truths and applying them to the issue of disunity. But it's not just that. Paul is going to take the gospel truths, like we see in Romans 6 and 7, and apply them to the issue of ongoing persistent sin and the struggle and weight we feel with our sin in the world. In chapter 13, he's going to go on, he's going to talk about how do we relate to the government? How do Christians deal with politics? How do we submit to the government? And then he's going to end the letter, and he's going to talk to the missions committee. And he's going to say, how are you guys going to use your money to support missionaries? And so Paul is getting in the weeds of people's lives. And so when I say what we're going to do is take the gospel truths and apply them in specific areas, we're following the pattern that Paul sets down in the letter to the Romans. And so that's what we kind of hope to do tonight, and that's maybe the theological rationale for that. So the way we're going to look at this text tonight is in two movements that reflect that pattern I said earlier, is we're going to start with the believer's present blessings in Christ. And then we're going to move to the past basis of those blessings. To put it differently, maybe a little more provocatively, we could say it like this. Paul is going to say something like, I'm justified, so what? Like, what does it matter? What good does it do me that I'm justified? How does that affect my life? He's going to answer that question. And then he's going to pivot and ask a second question that we probably all wrestle with. I'm justified, but what if? What if God's grace is removed from me? What if I fall into that sin? Will God take the assurance of those blessings away from me? And so we're going to answer that te this text in those two ways. The, I'm justified, so what? It's a relevance question. I'm justified. What if? What do we do if? And so that's how we're going to move through this passage. And so to understand this passage, to hit that first one, I'm justified. So what? Paul's going to show us the benefits of the Christian life. But before we dive into the benefits of justification, it's important to understand what justification is. And so the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, what we all know and love, it says this, uh, justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons us of all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, but only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Justification is basically saying we had an issue with God because of our sin, and God had an issue with us. He was displeased with our sin. But he removed the debt we owed to him by sending Christ to die on our behalf, 
and so that removed the punishment we deserved, but he also gave us Christ's perfect record so we could stand before him perfectly righteous. And that's kind of the basis, basic understanding of justification. But it's not enough just to sit there. We often uh, think about the gospel sort of like this. Is the gospel is this general truth that we need to know the answer to so that someday we die and we know what to tell God for why he should let us in. Like, why shall I let you into heaven? Well, I believed in Jesus. Not what I did, it's what Jesus did. And that's good. It's good to know what's true for sure. But Paul wants to show us what the gospel empowers us, like I said earlier, to do. How does the gospel transform our life? I've heard it put this way before as well. Gospel application, it's not enough just to take cleaning agent and walk into a dirty room and take a big bucket and just throw on the floor and be like, oh, they're, they're just good, right? Like it's the cleaning agent's on the ground, the room's clean, right? Gospel application looks like getting on your hands and knees and scrubbing the grout with the cleaning agents. And that's what Paul wants to, see, wants to see us do with the gospel in this particular passage. And that's what he wanted to see the Roman Christians do as well. And so how we're going to proceed is, is kind of like this. We're going to understand the basics of four blessings that we presently enjoy in the Christian life. And then we're going to apply those blessings into the situations we all tend to face. So that's how we'll proceed. We'll get right into the application. And so the first blessing we see here, uh, I believe in verse 1, is that we have peace with God. And so the gospel or justification answers this question, how can sinners be made right with a holy God? But if we're all being honest, we often wrestle with, is God displeased with me? Even non-Christians, non-religious people wrestle with this question as Greg was mentioning, the Dutch earlier, a famous Dutch missionary and theologian, a guy by the name of Johan Hermann Bavink. If you know Hermann Bavink, it's his nephew. Uh, he wrestled with Romans chapter 1 all through his life. And he argued that all people have a fundamental religious consciousness. And what that religious consciousness does is it reminds people and shows people that they're guilty before God. And everyone feels discontent with that reality. And so what we do is we try to conceive of ways to be made right with God, but we do it through our own means, through our own thoughts. And so what Bavink says I think is fascinating. He says all people are trying to create ways to ascend to God, but in the moment they ascend towards God, their efforts actually make them flee away from God even further. The moment people try to ascend towards God on their own strength, by their own merit, by their own thoughts, that step towards God looks like two steps away from God. And so the gospel solves that issue because it's God's answer to the problem. It's not men trying to conceive how am I made right with God. It's God's answer to it. It's God condescending in the person of Jesus Christ in making us right with him. Justification solves the issue of a guilty conscience. Justification solves the issue of the debt we had with God. If I owe someone money, our relationship can't be made right until the debt's paid. And what the gospel's saying is the debt's paid. It's been paid in full. There's no outstanding debt that's ruining our relationship. The debt's been settled. And furthermore, our peace is both the peace that God has towards us, as he was initially angry and wrathful towards our sin, it gives him peace towards us, but also... It, it makes us peaceful towards God. We're no longer hostile. 
We're no longer rebels rebelling against God, running away from him in angry rebellion, but it draws us near to see that God is loving and gracious because of what he did in his son. And so what would this do in our life? Would it help us to know that we can have peace with God? I think there's a simple application here is that it rids us of the need to self-justify. It rids us of this need to try to find peace with God on our own terms. Often, if you've ever been in a relationship that's difficult, sometimes disagreements can't be resolved because one person or both parties are constantly self-justifying. Say, well, I'm not as bad as you're trying to make me out to be. You're actually the problem. Or it's people that look around the world around them and say, well, I'm not really the issue. It's those people over there. We were having a conversation about what it means to be woke earlier at my house, and it's easy to look at the people and say, well, at least I'm not woke. Or if you consider yourself woke, to say, well, you know, at least I'm not anti-woke. And it makes us never have peace with anyone because we're always trying to level up. We're always trying to ascend towards God by our merits, by our works. And we can never have our name run through the dirt. We can never be accused unjustly. We always have to defend our name. We always have to defend our rights. And we always have to use other people as stepping stones to draw near to God. Yet what we realize if we do that is the moment we try to use all those means to ascend towards God, we're like as Johann Bobbink says, we try to ascend towards God through means that he hasn't appointed, and we end up finding ourselves further and further away from him. And so when we have peace with God, we don't have to go around defending our name. We don't have to go around self-justifying. We already have justification from the one who really matters. We already have peace with the one who our soul longs to have peace with. And so it gives us the ability to have peace with the people around us. To have peace with God transforms our relationships with other people. So the second blessing that Paul hits here is that we have access into this grace in which we stand. I think what it means here is that we've been introduced into a new realm of grace. The world that we exist in, if you're in Christ, is one of grace. As Paul will say later in Romans 8, that all things work together for good for those who have been called according to Christ's purpose. And what that's saying is that those who God was once actively opposed to have now been brought under his loving care. So nothing that you will encounter will be God's harm intended for you. It's all for your good. We have access to this grace. It also removes our hostile indifference to God. And so when you've been brought near to God and you have access into this grace, that cold apathy, the rebellion, your hard-heartedness is removed as you're drawn nearer and nearer to God himself. You have access into this grace. Another way to think about this is that we have free access to God. We're brought near to him himself. We're not just having access to something he does. We're having access to him who gives grace. We have access to God himself. It makes me kind of remember uh, when I was at Monmouth, uh, the school I went to, the college I went to, they kind of called it like, what, I don't know how they were phrased, but they called it like a safe zone. So when I remember showing up as a freshman, and they went way out of their way to, to say this. It was kind of wild looking back. But they basically said, if you get in trouble, like serious trouble, legal trouble, just know we're not going to tell the cops. And you'd be like, I just remember sitting there thinking, like, really? Like, can you do that? They're like, yeah, they have to go through us. And so it was just kind of one of those moments you're like, oh my gosh, like people could do anything they want around here. 
But what it's kind of the reason I say the illustration is that we're brought into God's kingdom is that before I was a Monmouth College student, if I did something illegal, if I did something bad, they didn't care. They weren't there to protect me. They weren't there for my good. They weren't there to see me get an education. But the moment I enrolled, they were going to do everything they could to get me through to the end to get my degree. They were going to give me the classes I needed. They were going to give me the legal help I needed, apparently. I never had to use that, just in case you were wondering. Um, but we had access into the grace that Monmouth was extending to the students that other people didn't. And when we're brought into God's family, we live in that realm of grace where all that is done to us is from God's gracious hand. But I want to hit another interesting point of this particular passage, and it's this. I wonder if when Paul says you have access into this grace in which you, plural you, now stand, if what he's talking about is the church. You have access to this powerhouse of grace in your life. And if we all looked around each other, it's the person sitting next to you. It's these people that we meet with every Sunday and Wednesday morning and Thursday night and Friday morning. Is when Paul's saying we have access to this grace, is you were once far off. You had to figure out life's problems on your own. Marriage difficulty? Go figure it out. Go read a good book. Hopefully you can get a good counselor. But when you get brought into God's kingdom, you have access to this grace. The grace of sitting in these pews. The grace of meeting with your small group. The grace of pastoral counseling. The grace of good friendships that care about you and want to see you grow in the Christian life. What if when Paul's saying this grace is the grace of the church, being brought into the covenant community that he has created by the blood of Christ? What if it's this grace? Well, what would this do in our life? I think a few things uh, just as way of application. It would give us gratitude towards life to know that God's only doing good to us. Even the hardest parts of our life are meant for our good and for our sanctification. It would give us hope towards change, to know that God is using all the circumstances of our life as an act of grace to draw us near to himself. And I think lastly is that we would realize that this particular place, these particular people, those particular people in your family, in your neighborhood, at your workplace, they are God's instruments of grace in your life. They're not mistakes. They're what God has intended to grow you, these particular circumstances. And then lastly, just this church is a means of grace to all of us, and we ought to live into that reality. So thirdly, the third blessing that Paul highlights is that we can boast in glory, boast in the glory of God. John Murray kind of sees this as an irony that the people that were talked about in chapter 1, they were hostile and indifferent to God, are now the same people. The people are defaming God's name. The people that didn't care about God. The people that were way far off. Those are the people that God says they're going to share in God's glory. It's like my wife and I. We became Michigan fans. We didn't grow up in Michigan. We didn't go to Michigan. We have, we've never given Michigan a dollar of our money, probably. I guess we went to a game. But besides that, you know, we haven't done anything for Michigan. They haven't done anything for us. But we moved up here, and we became Michigan fans. And you better believe we were watching the national championship. And when they won, they scored the touchdowns. We were excited. And the next day, we could wake up, and we could proudly wear our Michigan gear because we were partakers of their glory. We got to share in their experience. 
What Paul's saying here is the glory we share in with God is something that Christ has achieved, but it gives us access to it. We get to partake in it. We get to act as if it's our own. We get to share in Christ's glory. And what that would mean for us is that we no longer have to seek glory in this life. We no longer have to seek uh, more money and more fame and more acclamation, more respect. We don't need to defend our name at all causes because we get to share in God's glory, a glory that far transcends any glory you can have in this earth. And maybe beyond those like really macro things, I don't have to sit around and try to make myself look the best in the church. I don't have to have my life together more than anybody else. I don't have to lie about my sins and my struggles. I can be honest with them because my glory doesn't come from receiving it from you. It comes from God himself. I don't need to use my life and my social uh, interactions and relationships as stepping stones to elevate myself. I can be free to serve. I can be free to be honest because I get to share in God's glory. I don't need to get glory from you or from anybody. I can get it from God himself. Fourthly, and the last blessing we'll talk about today or benefit, is that we get to boast in affliction. And so it's so contrary to the regular thought, right? We can imagine boasting in glory because boasting in glory is the absence of affliction. But boasting in affliction, that turns common, you know, kind of common sense reality on its head to say that in the midst of your deepest affliction, that can be the moment that you boast the most. <laughs> Didn't mean to rhyme there. That just, that just happened. You know, that wasn't in my notes. You guys got that one for free. Um, it's not, what Paul's trying to get at is that it's not just for eternal life, it's for regular life. Like God's grace is for when you get cancer. God's grace is for when your marriage is hard. God's grace is for when your kid's not sleeping at night. God's grace is for those particular issues. It's for regular life, not just for eternal life, although it is obviously that as well. I think it's helpful to recognize that what word the ESV translates is rejoice. It's actually the word boast. It's the same word for boast. And so in 2 Corinthians where Paul says, I'll boast in my weakness, but what Paul's saying in that passage is that his qualification for ministry is the things he struggles with. It's his sufferings. It's his trials. It's the afflictions he endures if you've ever read that passage in chapter 12. And what I think Paul is trying to get at here is that we can boast in our affliction as if it's like this. I could stand up in here and say, look at how much God loves me when I point to my difficulties. This is how much I know God cares because of these hard realities of my life. I know that he's using all things for my good, and so I can boast all the more of my weaknesses, my hardship, hardships, my insults, all of those things, and it points me on to recognizing this is a part of God's grace to me. Even these afflictions, they are a part of God's grace. So we don't boast in ourselves. We don't boast in the wrong object. We boast in Christ himself and what he's done and the grace that God's offering uh, towards us in him. I think there's an important uh, connection between justification and suffering. And the, the connection is just this. If I don't understand justification being something I receive by faith, but it's all what Christ has done, then every time a hardship comes in my life, I begin to think, is God trying to pay me back? Is God trying to get me back for that sin I did? Is God trying to get me somehow? Is he going to pull the rug out from underneath my feet? Because ultimately we think, 
I'm made right with God by my works. But when we understand that I'm only made right by Christ's work, then even the afflictions become grace to us. We no longer have to kind of peer around the corner and say, man, I, I really hope this all works out. My life's going so well. Hopefully, you know, my past sins don't catch up with me and God just pulls the rug out from underneath me and my life falls apart. We don't go looking around, for, around corners for the disaster that we're afraid is going to happen is that all of God's actions to us are by grace. And we ground that reality in the reality of justification. So as an application to all this, it's important to see that we need to evaluate our response to afflictions and to suffering. If when affliction and suffering comes to our life, we try to uh, flee from it, get it out of our life as quickly as possible, or we get angry with God, or angry with the people around us and throw insults, and we're miserable, and we're not joyful, it's actually just revealing to us that we're still holding on to this idea of works righteousness. That we think God holds uh, us, he, that he treats us according to our works, not according to Christ's work. And we don't see that even God's, uh, the trials he brings in our life are for our good. We think that they're because we're being punished for our sin. And so our response to suffering is really, really important. It also reveals how we think about those other benefits. If we don't think we have peace with God, then we'll always be worried that he's going to get us somehow, or he's going to trap us, or bring some kind of disaster in our life. Maybe we're worried about losing the glory we so desperately long for. And so to be having our name defamed or run through the mud is so crushing to us because we're holding on to the glory that we want, not the glory we share with Christ. So it's so important to understand why we can boast in our affliction. So with those things being said, we have to realize the gospel's full of blessings for here and now. But it doesn't answer that second part of the question, and that's the what-if question. I'm justified. I have access to all these blessings and benefits that help me live my life for Christ. But what if? What if it all falls apart tomorrow? What if God brings back those past sins? What do I do then? And that's looking at verses 5 through 8. It's the issue of assurance. How can we be assured of God's favor to us in the gospel? Paul does a few things here to demonstrate how sure God's love to us is. The first is this. He shows us how we can see God's love subjectively applied, meaning we've experienced it internally. And that's where he talks about the Spirit being poured into our hearts. And that's a phrase that Paul will use at various points. As I was studying, I was trying to come up with some like logical reasoning for that, like, oh, Paul, if we understand that the Spirit's poured into our hearts, then we'll grow in a love for God and we'll understand the grace. But all the commentators, when you read it, they're just kind of like, yeah, it's a spiritual reality. And I imagine many of us have experienced it. When you put your faith in Christ, you have moments where you've sat in church, and you just have a keen awareness that God loves me, that God cares for me. And that's the subjective experience of God's grace to you, confirming that God loves you, that he cares for you, that he is for your good. And that's really important to have that. And we all have enjoyed those times where we just feel supernaturally close to God through the work of Christ. But in real life, we don't experience that all the time. Uh, we have a lot of ups and downs. We have a lot of roller coaster of emotions. And so God just doesn't want us to feel it. He wants to show his, God, his love to us so that we can know objectively, historically, definitively that God loves us. And how does he do that? 
Well, he shows us that at our worst is when Christ died for us. And when we were at the pits, we were our darkest state. That is when God loved us. That's when he sent Christ to die for us, when he saw you like that. It's interesting when you see the comparisons in verses 6, 7, and 8 of the uh, normal person who would die for a good person, maybe, or die for, perhaps for a righteous person. Some take that as like a righteous or a good cause, like I would die for my country or something like that. Regardless of how you swing it, what we need to realize is there's qualifications. Yeah, if someone was good, they're a really good person, then maybe I would die for them. If it was a really good cause, super good. I would lay my life down. But it's not just that God's love to us doesn't have qualifications. It has negative qualifications. It says when you were impious, when you were wicked, when you were weak, when you were helpless. And later, Paul will say when you were an enemy. At that moment, that is when God displayed his love for you. When you were at your absolute worst. And he says that's the reason that we won't experience shame. Because at our worst is when Christ died for us. That was the picture in mind when he died for us. Well, to understand how this applies, we need to understand a few ways shame works. Shame has kind of two, motiva- or two avenues that will go down. One is when you say you'll do something and it doesn't come true. That's like when you're a kid and you say, I'm going to be a baseball player. I'm going to be an actor or something. And then you get older and it doesn't happen. And you kind of look back and you think, yeah, I wish I wouldn't have said that. Because it feels embarrassing. Because something that you thought was going to come true didn't come true. Maybe another way we see that is like the classic picture of uh, the girl gets asked to homecoming, but the date doesn't show up. She really hoped that this was kind of going to be the magical night, but the date doesn't show up. And she's left there feeling ashamed that she'd ever hoped that he would or that she would actually go on a date with him or something like that. And I'm sure we've had those experiences. But another type of shame is like this. I remember when I was a kid, I had a friend over. uh, A lot of my stories have this particular friend in them. Uh, He was over for a sleepover or something, and I thought there was a ghost in our house. And I told him about it because I was scared. And he was like in it with me. He's like, we need to like, you know, stake out and find the ghost and all these things. But the next day at school, we're sitting in the cafeteria, and he was in a different classroom, so he sat with his friends, and, or all of our friends, but in a different classroom, and he told them, he's like, can you believe Chase? He believes in ghosts. Isn't that so childish of him? Isn't that so embarrassing? I remember they all laughed at me, which is so sad, right? Uh, but it is. It's like, it was so shameful. It's like, I told you something, and then you exposed me. I told you something in confidence, and then you exposed me to everybody. It was so embarrassing. And so often, we worry that when the, you know, the end comes and you stand before God, he's going to look at you and say, you're disgusting. I never, why would you do that? You're a pervert. You're an adulterer. You're a liar. You're a cheat. How could you? We're worried that someday when we expose all the truth before God, that he's going to look at you and say, I don't want you. How could anyone want you? And yet the truth of the gospel is he looks in the darkest moment of your life. And at that moment, he says, I love you. I'm not ashamed of you. Jesus says in Hebrews 2, he's not ashamed to be called your brother. He's not disgusted by you. There's no moment in your marriage, in your parenting, in your childhood that he looks at and says, because of that, I don't want you. 
because of what was done to you, I don't want you. That will never come up. For those who are in Christ, there's no shame left. You will never be put to shame. There's nothing that's going to come to the light where God's going to say, my grace is not sufficient for you. Because he says, my grace is sufficient for you in your weakness, in your sin, in your impiety, in your wickedness. In that moment, I loved you. How could I take it away from you now? That's why God's grace will not shame us. And it gives us the freedom to confess our sin to him, to confess our sin to each other. We don't have to be ashamed of it anymore. God himself isn't ashamed. I think it's so important to understand this, you know, like in addiction circles, they would call like the shame cycle. And the shame cycle is something like this. You're caught in some addiction and you can't get out and you feel disgusted with yourself. And for Christians, we think, how could God ever love me? And so you find yourself feeling worse and worse and more dirty and guilty. And so you move further and further away, holding your hand at a distance from God, and it actually puts you into greater despair. Sometimes the worse you feel about it, and the more you think about how other people are viewing you as the light of it, it, this shame actually makes you recreate those actions that caused you shame in the first place. But the gospel frees us from that. Shames us from the, it frees us from the shame we feel in marriage. It, shame, feel, it frees us from the shame we feel in the things we've done in our past and maybe even some things we're currently doing. It gives us hope, not despair, because God's love shows up even in the dark places of our lives. It doesn't hide when it sees the truth. It came because it saw the truth about you. God's love extended to you because it knew the truth. Shame thrives in hiding, but the gospel frees us from shame. And so it won't ever put us to shame. And we can have sure confidence because of when Christ died for us. So as we conclude, uh, earlier I hit on this problem that we sort of have, is that we sort of live like beggars. We look at the gospel and we think it's good for a portion of our life, but when the real problems come, got to go somewhere else to find solution. We're like people on the street asking for help for whoever can give it. When we're actually heirs of this great kingdom that we just don't want to access. We've got all this money and all these things, but we're out on the street asking for help for whoever can uh, give us a hand. But Paul has shown us we have great riches and benefits and blessings in Christ. But there's a second issue that's more deceptive. And I think we often fall uh, victim to this. It's just this. Sometimes we forget the benefits. And that's obviously a problem. But even worse than that is we forget the benefactor. We forget God himself. In these passages, Paul uses this phrase, dia Christu. It means through Christ or according to Christ at least five times. And what he's saying is that all these blessings come through Jesus Christ. And what that means is something like this. We don't just need justification. We need the justifier. We don't just need peace. We need the peacemaker. We don't just need glory. We need the glory of God manifested in the face of Jesus Christ himself. We don't just need saved. We need a savior. We don't just need all these benefits apart from Christ. We need Jesus Christ himself. The good news of the Christian life isn't just that we get the benefits. Is the greatest benefit of the Christian life is that we get God himself. The thing David says he prays for and longs for is to dwell in the presence of God. And the Christian message allows us to dwell in the presence of God himself is the great benefit. And so if we want to grow in the Christian life, if we want to face the difficulties that life throws at us, we can't just be content with the benefits. We need to go on to the benefactor. We need to have more satisfaction and more treasure stored up in God himself than we do in any of the benefits that he could possibly give. 
As John Piper has famously said, God himself is the good news. He is the gospel. We don't need to look just to get benefits from God. The gospel allows us to get God himself. And so when we face the difficulties of life, we need to be pointed on to the treasure that he is within himself. And I hope we're able to do that. If you guys can please pray with me. Father, your word is good. Your word is powerful. God, your word has the power to drive shame out of our lives. When we face difficulties and trials, challenges of all and various kinds, help us see that the gospel has the resources. The gospel isn't just like a family practitioner. It's the specialist. It knows exactly what we need when we need it. Help us not look past the gospel, look deeper into the gospel itself. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.